There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. It was soon after the Easter Bank holiday weekend in April 1979. Emotions were running high at the county ground football stadium on Wantage Road in Abington, Northampton. Northampton Town were playing against Crewe. The atmosphere was tense. Once the match finished... A gang of agitated spectators gathered outside and began to start trouble. At first, it was just quarrelling between opposing fans before bottles and rocks were hurled through the air. The police made their presence known to dissipate the crowd, and eventually the officers successfully defused the situation. With their job done, they left but the next morning the police were contacted and asked to return to Abington. The woman had been walking down an alleyway around a mile from the county ground. Something in the distance caught her eye, and as she edged closer, she could see that it was the body of a teenage boy. This is a very sad episode in the history of Northampton. Uh, He'd been strangled, uh, left there on the ground, um... No attempt was made to cover his body up. His jacket and spectacles were missing and his shoes and his belt were to one side. Are you able to say as much that uh, you're looking for a local man? Difficult to say. Very difficult to say that. Might well be because most crime is is committed by local people, but it's difficult to say. Welcome to They Walk Among Us a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is the 30th in a series of bonus episodes. 
Sean McGann was born into an Irish Catholic family in January 1964. One of three children, he had a younger brother and sister. He was enrolled at Thomas Beckett Catholic School in Northampton, where he was hard-working and studious. While some teenage boys in his classroom were unruly, Sean was a shy and caring individual who spent the majority of his time in the company of his close-knit family. The bespectacled teenager had fair, mousy hair, and his school photograph showed a serious disposition. However, a home video later released to the public pictured Sean playing happily in the snow with his younger brother. He had a deep fondness for horses, learning to ride them skillfully at a young age. It was hard to fathom that anyone would want to harm Sean. He had no enemies. In fact, he had just started to give up some of his spare time to volunteer. Over the Easter Bank holiday of 1979, the 15-year-old spent the weekend at home with his family. Then on Tuesday, April 17th, he visited his grandparents in Victoria Gardens in Northampton. At some point between 5pm and 6.30pm, Sean left to visit the fun fair at Midsummer Meadow. The fair visited Northampton around half a dozen times each year and Sean always made sure to attend. Before he had left that evening, his grandfather handed him one pound to spend on the rides. Sean would have journeyed past the old cattle market and across Beckett's Park, leading straight to Midsummer Meadow. That same night, a football match between Northampton Town and Crewe was being held at the local football stadium. The county ground, now used to host events and is the home of the local cricket team, is located two miles north of Midsummer Meadow in the Abington area of Northampton. The situation outside the stadium following the match became heated. The police were called to try and disperse the crowd, which they did successfully. As night fell and Sean had not returned home, his grandparents became worried and reported his disappearance to the police. They searched the streets for Sean, but to no avail. The family then returned home for a sleepless night of tossing and turning, their minds plagued with worry. The following morning at around 8.10am, Guard King was walking to work through an alleyway at the back of Birchfield Road East when something caught her eye. It appeared to be a bundle of clothes discarded in the lonely alleyway at the back of a service road. As she got closer, she could see that it was not clothing at all, but instead a motionless teenager lying on the floor. Amgard recalled to the Northampton Chronicle, I usually cut through the alleyway, and I saw somebody lying on the ground. I thought he'd been taken ill or fainted, 
but his shoes were off, which seemed funny. Umgard tried to speak to the youngster, but received no response. She crouched down beside him, attempting to rouse the teenager awake by speaking more loudly. After several attempts, it quickly dawned on Umgard that it was more likely the poor boy was deceased. Umgard's son was a police officer, so she knew better than to touch the body out of fear that she could contaminate a potential crime scene. She instead ran to the nearest home and asked the occupants to call the police. In the meantime, she returned to the boy's body to keep other passers-by from approaching. The arrival of officers was swift, and they set up a cordon. They were already aware of Sean's disappearance, and based on the teenager's appearance, they determined that the body was most likely Sean McGann. The alleyway was located almost three miles from the funfair, Sean's intended destination, and half a mile northeast from the county ground. As crime scene photographers got to work, so did the police. First of all, they searched the alleyway and immediate vicinity. Near Sean's body, they came across his shoes and belt, but curiously, his black and orange anorak and brown and gold glasses were missing. And pathologists would determine that Sean McGann had been strangled to death. However, there was no evidence of sexual assault and there was no indication Sean had been a victim of a robbery gone wrong. A murder investigation was launched, led by Detective Chief Superintendent Arthur Crawley. Investigators learned that a yellow car, possibly a Cortina, was seen parked in the early hours of the morning near where Sean's body was found. A witness explained they had seen two people leaving the vehicle around 12.30am, but could not recall which direction the pair went in. The owner of the car was subsequently traced, however, and cleared of any involvement. Among the first lines of inquiry was to question those who were in attendance at the football match. It seemed like a natural place to start given the uneasy atmosphere. Police feared that Sean may have been targeted by someone or several people in the crowd who were fueled on adrenaline from an earlier altercation with the police. That same morning, a headline in the Birmingham Post read, Murder Mystery. The article divulged very few details about the case other than to report that it was not yet known whether there was a connection between Sean's murder and a potential suspect who had been to the match earlier in the evening. Police officers decided to travel to Crewe, with a senior official stating to a reporter from the Evening Sentinel, There is no suggestion at the moment that anyone from Crewe is involved there were the usual skirmishes between supporters outside the football ground, 
and the officers from Northampton are trying to eliminate from the inquiry those supporters from crew who might have been in those skirmishes. Since there were only 20 to 25 crew supporters at the match, it would be a straightforward task for the police to interview each of them as opposed to all of the home fans who attended from Northampton. A mobile station was set up near the site where Sean's body was found. Sadly, none of the football fans had seen Sean that evening, nor had they noticed anything suspicious that could assist investigators. Devoid of tips, the police decided to undertake a reconstruction of Sean McGann's last known movements. They had a teenager of similar build and appearance to Sean, walk around the county ground during a match to see if it could spark someone's memory. The young man wore an anorak identical to the one Sean had been wearing that night, an item of clothing that still remained missing. The anorak was a Campari-branded jacket made with black and orange nylon. It was lined with fibre and had a concealed hood. It was purchased two years earlier and was still in good condition at the time of Sean's death. After the reconstruction, no spectators came forward to report seeing Sean that evening. In turn, the police deduced that the killing was not linked in any way to the football match. They believed it was just a coincidence that his body was found nearby. Now, just a wasteland, but on that Tuesday night of last week, it was alive with the people coming to the fair. Did you come to the fair on that Tuesday? Did you see a lad wearing a black and orange anorak like that one? Did he go away with somebody to a car? Perhaps they offered him a lift. If you walk the few yards up from Birchfield Road, you come to the service road or alleyway that services the garages down there and it was about 50 yards down there that the body was found tucked into a corner we'd like to find anybody who came down this alleyway up to 10 past 8 on that wednesday morning when the body was found perhaps you passed by saw somebody lying here and didn't look very closely didn't want to get involved but your help could be absolutely essential investigators soon began working on the theory that sean had been killed elsewhere and then his body disposed of down the alleyway. They were unsure whether Sean had ever made it to the fun fair that evening. Officers suspected that he may have been intercepted by his killer or killers, and his body was then taken to the alleyway, left there sometime between 6.45 and 8.10 a.m. The police were also still trying to find some of Sean's belongings, his glasses and jacket. Where were they? Had the killer kept them when they ended Sean's life, or had they been disposed of elsewhere? DCS Arthur Crawley provided an update on the investigation. The killing was apparently motiveless which means, of course, that you've got to explore every possible motive rather than a killing with a motive where you can set off in one direction.
While there was no evidence that Sean McGann had been sexually assaulted, the police said that the alleyway where his body was found was known as a, quote, cruising area for gay men. It would later be understood that officers were in fact referring to the old Midsummer Meadows toilets. However, Sean's body was found several miles from that location. Police spoke with a local man in the gay community, asking him to provide a list of every man he knew that was gay. He did so, and even produced the names of men as far out as Bedford. Detectives attempted to speak to each and every person on the list during this new avenue of the inquiry. Professor Trevor Thomas of Pembroke Street in Bedford a former member of the executive of the Campaign for Homosexual Equality, hit out at the police and the direction the investigation had taken. He spoke with a reporter for the newspaper Bedford on Sunday and said, I was visited by two detectives who said they had got my name from a gay in Northampton who gave them a total of 70 names. Professor Thomas described how the questioning was routine at first, and he answered where he was at the time of the murder and whether he could provide an alibi. Questioning then shifted, and the police demanded that Professor Thomas provide the names of other gay men he knew. Some questions were detailed, focusing primarily on his life as a gay man. Frustrated about the type of questions being asked, he recollected, I could not see that they were in any way relevant, particularly as there is no evidence that this was a homosexual murder. While speaking with Professor Thomas, the police revealed that they had already interviewed around 200 gay men in the area despite a lack of evidence to continue exploring this avenue of the inquiry. After the visit from officers to his home, the professor immediately contacted the National Council for Civil Liberties, an advocacy group which challenges unjust laws, protects civil liberties and promotes human rights. The group informed Professor Thomas that they had already filed a number of other complaints about the investigation, and for good reason. It was alleged that the investigation had become unprofessional and vindictive. The complaints included cases where employers had been informed by the police that a member of their staff was gay and another where a young man's parents were told of his sexual orientation. Bear in mind this was the late 1970s. Being openly gay was more likely to make an individual the victim of harassment, and even result in them being fired from their place of work. Nettie Pollard, a spokeswoman for the National Council for Civil Liberties, confirmed to the media that there had been around a dozen complaints about the nature and scope of the investigation, as officers were requesting information from men about their relationships going back five years. In fact, one young man was charged with gross indecency 
after divulging information to the police while being questioned. At the time, the age of consent for gay sex was 21, and some men had provided information which implicated them in a crime. Nettie Pollard said, It has all the signs of an attack on the gay community. It is not the way to get cooperation. As details of the harassment became public knowledge, DCS Crawley refused to provide a detailed response. Instead, he stated, If people have any complaints, there is a well-established procedure. After five months of investigation, over 9,000 statements had been taken by the police. Still, they were no closer to finding Sean McGann's killer than they were on day one. DCS Crawley announced that they were now working on the theory that Sean had been abducted by a sexual predator, murdered, then his body dumped in the alleyway. The detective said... Until this criminal is apprehended, our children cannot go about the town safely for fear that the killer may strike again. In the autumn, a reward of £1,000 was offered for any information relating to the case, but nobody came forward. In July 1986... Speculation was rampant that Sean McGann may have been the victim of a serial killer. Several months earlier, on March 26th, 10-year-old Sarah Harper disappeared from her home in Leeds after leaving to purchase some bread from a nearby corner shop. The owner confirmed that Sarah had arrived at the store, purchased the bread and then set off on her journey home. By 8.20pm, Sarah had not arrived, and a search party for the young girl began. It was not until April 19th that her body was discovered. She was floating in the River Trent near Nottingham, partially clothed, gagged and bound. She had injuries to her face, and she had been sexually assaulted. A cause of death was concluded to be drowning, and the pathologist estimated she was most likely killed in the hours after her disappearance. It was theorised Sarah was attacked and then thrown into the river to drown. In July, the officers investigating her murder announced that there were 13 other child murders nationwide, including five girls and eight boys all of which were then unsolved. These killings spanned from 1978 to 1986 and included the 1979 murder of Sean McGann. The police ominously announced, We cannot discount the possibility that all these cases could be connected. A unique summit meeting of senior detectives was arranged, and they all swapped information on the unsolved murders which occurred throughout the country. Over the forthcoming years and even decades, 
only a handful of these cases were ever solved, and the police were still searching for answers as they hunted for Sean McGann's killer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand, and now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. Almost a decade and a half passed since Sean's death, when in 1991, a letter arrived at the business that Sean's father David owned. The letter was from somebody who claimed they had important information about the killer. Details surrounding this mysterious piece of correspondence were not released by the police until many years later in 2019, when the cold case was being re-examined on the 40th anniversary. 
the Northamptonshire Constabulary turned to the media, who released a photograph of the handwriting on the envelope, hoping that somebody somewhere could identify the person who had sent it. Detective Chief Inspector Joe Banfield believed that the letter writer, quote, had some really relevant information about the crime. He also shared his belief that over the past 40 years, Sean's killer must have told somebody about the murder. Well, I don't expect the offender to come forward and tell me that they're the killer of Sean McGann, but that person may have offloaded that information to somebody else who's living with it, who's had it in their conscience for the last 40 or so years. Now's the time to tell me. It is 40 years on, and if you have any information, come forward to the police on the various ways that they can do that, which is either through Crime Stoppers anonymously, uh, 101 and the extension number 341078, uh, or indeed uh, through the email system from Northamptonshire Police. We'll act upon that information and see what we can do in terms of trying to detect uh, this, this, this horrible case 40 years on. As the letter was released in the media, Sean's family poignantly said, 40 years on, we still think of him every day. Throughout 2019, the investigation into Sean McGann's murder continued. The police reviewed all of the evidence in the case files, including the original crime scene photographs. One eagle-eyed officer spotted something that had been missed over the past four decades. In one of the photographs, he noticed that on the wall behind Sean's body, Somebody had written, very sorry, and in another scrawled message, no, I'm not. This new information was released to the public through BBC's Crime Watch Roadshow, with Detective Chief Inspector Banfield stating, this could be really, really relevant. It might not be, but actually what we know is it hasn't been released before. The police once again appealed for information from the public, with DCI Banfield pleading for people to search their consciences. However, no useful information came in. Nobody could identify the letter writer, nor could anybody offer any insight into the graffiti. In July 2021, a person of interest in the unsolved murder of Sean McGann finally emerged. 94-year-old Sidney Cook. Cook's history of child abuse and murder is exceptionally long and will be covered at a later date on this podcast. In summary, and why he was a suspect in Sean's murder is as follows. Cook was a convicted sex offender and leading member of the notorious child abuse gang dubbed the Dirty Dozen. He had been exposed as a prolific paedophile and child killer during a substantial investigation that was called Operation Orchid. In August 1987, Cook and a handful of other like-minded men were arrested and charged with the 1985 murder of 14-year-old Jason Swift, 
His body was discovered in a field near Ongar in Essex. Before his death, Jason had run away from home and was just trying to get by. His father, Sidney Swift, had not seen his son in several years by the time he ran away, but he described him as a good lad, a kind and loving boy. Upon absconding from home, Jason found himself desperate, unable to fend for himself, and his situation led him to what has been termed child prostitution, despite the fact he could not provide consent due to his age. Jason hung around Hackney, where paedophiles paid to sexually abuse him. Sidney Cook, who was working as a fairground attendant, had approached Jason and offered him five pounds to join several men at a flat in Hackney. However, once there, he was drugged by the group of men with a muscle relaxant and then subjected to a brutal sexual attack. During the killing, the men slashed him with a knife. Their hands were gripped tightly around his neck and his mouth was covered. Among this group were Leslie Bailey, Robert Oliver and Stephen Barrell. Around a month after the murder, Sidney Cook called the police anonymously and confessed. He said, I just want to say it shouldn't have happened like that. I want you to know it was an accident. Bailey and Oliver were charged with murder, while Cook and Barrel were charged with manslaughter. They were all ordered to stand trial in February of 1989, and it was revealed that Cook had made something of a confession when he was arrested, but he distanced himself from the killing. He told the police that one of the men had given Jason a, quote, clump on the back, and that he was later suffocated. During the trial, the jury were told how Jason Swift had died, with a tear running down his cheek. Jason left this world in one of the cruelest ways possible at the hands of a group of depraved men who were led by Sidney Cook. According to medical experts, he was held face down on a bed and suffocated. They estimated it would have taken the teenager around 15 minutes to die. All of his earthly possessions included a few items of clothing, 98 pence, a battered Monopoly game with his initials scratched on it, and a tobacco tin containing his coin collection. The jury convicted all four men of manslaughter, while Bailey and Cook were additionally convicted of committing acts pertaining to perverting the course of justice by disposing of Jason's body. Sidney Cook was sentenced to 19 years in prison. Leslie Bailey and Robert Oliver were sentenced to 15 years, and Stephen Barrell was sentenced to one to two years. While Sidney Cook was serving his sentence, he was linked to the June 1984 murder of seven-year-old Mark Tildesley. 
While behind bars, Leslie Bailey had made a full confession to the murder, implicating Sidney Cook as well as another man, Lenny Smith. According to Bailey, Mark was lured away from the funfair in Wokingham by Cook, who promised him a bag of sweets. The men then subjected him to a brutal sexual attack before killing him and disposing of his body somewhere that remains a mystery to this day. Bailey was charged with the murder and the police tried for over a year to persuade the Crown Prosecution Service to file charges against Smith and Cook as well, but to no avail. According to the CPS, they did not believe the evidence was strong enough for a jury to convict. This decision was met with a massive backlash, with Chief Superintendent Robert Studley, who led the Operation Orchid investigation, commenting, Do these lawyers need to see more bodies before they will do something? The investigation had uncovered that the London-based paedophile gang had possibly killed multiple children. Leslie Bailey was handed two life sentences for his role in the murder of Mark Tildesley. Still, Lenny Smith and Sidney Cook were never charged. Bailey was also convicted of the 1985 murder of six-year-old Barry Lewis, who had been abducted from the streets of South London. His body was discovered in Essex, just four days after Jason Swift's body was found. Once again, Bailey implicated Sidney Cook and others in the abduction, rape and murder of Barry Lewis, but charges were never filed. Bailey only served a short portion of that sentence as in 1993, he was strangled to death by another inmate. From behind bars, Sidney Cook promised his fellow prisoners that once released, he would continue to target children. After serving just nine years in prison, Sidney Cook was a free man, released in April 1998, and his newfound freedom came with two new names, Carl Curtis and Sidney Lomas. Cook's sentence had been reduced on appeal. According to the authorities, he was not to be detained beyond two-thirds of his sentence. He was not subject to any supervision or recall due to the fact he was convicted before regulations were implemented, which allowed for checks to be kept on prisoners released early. On the day he was allowed out of prison, hundreds of protesters had gathered outside the jail, demanding that the victims be remembered and new laws be introduced to prevent paedophiles from being released. Kate Lowe's who ran the group Stop Paedophiles Exploiting and Abusing Kids said, Surely the time has come when the inadequate laws governing this group are tempered to common sense. By releasing this evil monster, the government are playing roulette with another child's life. The children that were murdered will never walk free and realise their potential. Their families serve a life sentence with no chance of an appeal or reprieve. 
Why should Cook get any less? A paralysing fear engulfed the nation according to the press as a prolific paedophile and child killer was back on the streets. Chief Superintendent Studley stated, I think almost certainly he will re-offend. It is all he has done most of his life. Sidney Cook moved into a Salvation Army hostel just two miles from where he and his accomplices abused and killed Jason Swift. In October 1998, Channel 4 broadcast a documentary series called Dispatches, which focused on the investigation into Sidney Cook. It revealed that investigators were frustrated that the Crown Prosecution Service rejected the case against Cook in the murder of Mark Tildesley. The producers of the documentary had tried to uncover more evidence against Cook in the hopes that charges could be filed in the case. They also attempted to uncover more of his potential victims. Shortly after the documentary aired, Thames Valley Police reopened an investigation into Cook. He was rearrested in January 1999 and was charged with 18 sexual offences against children between March 1972 and December 1981. Most of these offences occurred when Cook was travelling across the country while working at funfairs. In 1999, Cook pleaded guilty to all but eight of the charges, and he was handed two life sentences. Detective Superintendent Trevor Davis stated, It is now a matter for the parole board and the Home Secretary, but if you listen to the reports in court, this man must be considered a danger and the sentences reflect how long that danger must be considered for. I would expect him to be in prison for a very long time. I don't think his attitude will ever change. So where are we now? It came as no surprise that the combination of Sidney Cook's history of abusing and killing boys and often working at funfairs made investigators wonder if he was involved in Sean McGann's murder. In 2021, Northamptonshire police announced they were investigating whether there was any connection between the two. Detectives had learned that Cook once confessed to his cellmate that he was involved in the murders of 15 children or more, but the police only knew of a handful of these cases. The investigation was hampered by the fact that Cook refused to be interviewed from behind bars. Addressing the fact that Cook was not connected to the funfair in Northampton at the time of Sean McGann's murder, a police spokesman stated, From records in our possession, neither he nor any of his known associates were working at the funfair. Cook is a known paedophile and child murderer, currently serving a life term with little or no prospect of release. 
So far, the police have been unable to find any concrete evidence linking Sidney Cook to the murder of Sean McGann, and the case currently remains unsolved. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our patrons for supporting the podcast. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.